my ego is so fragile <laughs> that if you begin to walk out at noon, uh, I will slip into a deep funk. <laughs> so I do my best to finish at noon. I, I want to, uh, first of all, issue a disclaimer. Um, the views expressed in this message don't necessarily align with um, the views of Harvest. I'm trying to be there. <laughs> so if, if, you, if you object to or are offended or disagree with anything that I say, don't complain to Doug. Complain to me. You know, I, I, I have to say that uh, through this whole journey, and it has been a journey for over a year, um, my pastor has been so faithful. He has been so, such an amazing friend. I, I began speaking to him over a year ago about this word, and uh, the extent to which he has expressed his trust in me has, in fact, been very humbling. You know, when I, when I think of... Um, standing up here in front of you, uh, and I think about Doug and Artem and Rifle and Manny, I, I'm, I'm humbled by the fact that just for this one day, I have an opportunity to share the podium with them. It is the deepest desire of my heart that when I grow up, I'll be just like them. What Wayman is going to share today and his heart concerning reconciliation among people, groups, and things, it does reflect the, the, the views of this house. I just want to say that. I, I don't know where you got that from, but <laughs> of course, I don't know what you're going to get ready to share either. So I may change that toward the end of the service, but no, I believe I've... <laughs> I believe in, in this man and, and really what God puts on his heart. And so, there you go, brother. Thanks. So, so now I get five minutes more. <laughs> so this, uh, this journey began in earnest on the 13th of August of last year. Barbara and I were driving to, to church and I was beginning to be a bit angry with myself because sometime prior to that, Doug had asked me to be sort of the current events elder, that if, if anything was happening in the world, in the state, in the country that, that I thought needed to be brought to the attention of um, the saints here at Harvest, that I would share that with him. And I had not done that. I had not been obedient to that request because, as you may recall, on the 11th and the 12th of August in Charlottesville, there was a Unite the Right rally. And I, I followed that very closely, and I have to tell you, I was offended that that title could very well have embraced me. I am a conservative. I consider myself to be 
significantly right, right of center when it comes to politics and when it comes to social values. I was raised that way and uh, nothing in me has changed with regard to my political persuasion. But I was offended that there would be an organization in Charlottesville that weekend that would use the term unite the right to rally all of those, those of us who consider ourselves to be conservatives to support their cause. When in fact, um, it was anything but that. It was, it was a code word for white supremacist. It was a code word for neo-Nazis and neo-Confederates uh, whose speech and actions reflected nothing but hate and indignation which most of us on the right don't embrace. The purpose of this rally was, um, in the beginning, advertised to, to protest the recommendation on the part of the Charlottesville City Council to remove the statue of Robert E. Lee from Emancipation Park. Now, this issue of rem removing statues um, is one that I believe um, is at the root of great controversy. And, and I, th I think we need to be very smart. I think we need to be very wise about how we approach this issue. And I'll, if I have time, I'll get into that a little later on. But this was nothing more than a highly charged racist demonstration. And on my way to church that Sunday, I, I was disappointed in myself that I had not called one of my pastors and said, you know, I think it's important that as part of the message this morning, someone stand up and, and represent Harvest with respect to what had happened. And I was so um, relieved when Rifle got up that morning and said, this is not what Harvest stands for. This is not our principles of faith. It is not consistent with what we believe, what we preach, what we practice. So I was relieved that was over. The next day, um, I got this word. And I, I would ask that you put that on the screen because I, I, would, I would like for you to read this word with the same clarity that I heard it. Now, in retrospect, I have to say that I, I, have, I have spoken to a lot of people about this. Doug, on, on, on numerous occasions, my good friend Ryan and I, Brian and I have talked about, and Ryan too, I don't know where he is today, but Brian and I talked about this. Uh, there are a number of people that I've brought into my confidence in this, and um, and they affirm this word with me. And I want to read this, and I want you to hear it. The Lord said to me clearly, my church is the only entity in all of creation that can end the painful divide and long-suffering of racism. There is so much evidence, current day and historic evidence, to suggest that this is, in fact, truth. 
the church is positioned, it is equipped, it is trained, it is staffed to do just this. And, and I, I, I believe to a certain extent the church as a body has, has given over this, given this over, I should say, to the government. And it said, you know, this, this issue is too big for us to deal with. We can't get our hands, our arms around it, our hearts around it. So we have given it to the government to take care of. And I think you will all agree with me that the government has done um, an inadequate job in addressing this issue of racial divide. Now, now several days after that, and this is where the mystery of all of this becomes somewhat of a challenge to me. Um, I was led to some place that I really don't enjoy going, and that's the book of Revelation. But the Lord began to release in me um, a mystery. You know, I, I think many of you have heard me say this before. I, I believe that there are mysteries in the word that the Lord... Um, keeps from us because we we aren't in a place to carry the burden of the truth of the mystery so he's holding those for us for such a time as this and then there's those those mysteries that he releases to us because he knows we're prepared to walk them out and this is one of them I'm sorry I got to change glasses And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue, people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Now, I know what the message is in the context of the book of Revelation, but there, there was something there, some mystery that I know that the Lord was releasing to me about this. Um, and I, I began to ask myself the question, what does, what does we look like? And who from among us are those who have been called to reign and to be kings and royal priests? And, and it began to take on a whole new meaning for me, an all-inclusive, all-embracing. The we is all of us. All of us together, united, have been set aside to be the we in these scriptures. And so um, I, I prayed about that. I meditated on those words. And then the Lord um, said to me, and this is not up here, but um, there is a curse and a blessing in the, in the generations. And so these verses, um, if you put up those verses on um, the generations, please. And I, I just like, 
I, I'm not going to go into great detail about what these verses mean to me, but I, I just like to call them to your attention because I think it's important that as we address this issue, we consider them from a generational perspective. Not just the current generation, but previous generations and generations into the future. And for those of you here this morning who are in your 30s and your 40s, um, I, I believe that there is an immense burden on your generation. I believe that that part of the burden is defined in, in the challenges that you will face with the children you have been blessed with or the children that you will be blessed with. I would not envy any of you the challenge of raising children in today's environment. At once you feel called to nurture and protect them while at the same time preparing them for the reality of the world that we live in. That's an incredibly difficult task. And my prayers go out to you, um, to my son who has three young children, that he be prepared to stand up to this challenge. But you know, if, if you go back in history and consider all of the times when there are things that we need to view from a perspective of reconciliation, they are many and some of them we have not yet fully addressed. In the revolutionary period, the, the opening phrase in the Declaration of Independence, we declare these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And almost everything we did from that point on maligned that message. We said all men are created equal, but we did not behave as a new nation in the belief that all men are created equal. I would invite you to read uh, the correspondence between Abigail Adams and her husband John as, they, as John and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were about the business of drafting the Declaration of Independence. Abigail wrote her husband and said over and over again, what are you going to say in this document that addresses the state of women in this country and the state of slavery? And Adam's response was, I'm just trying to get together a piece of paper that everybody can sign. Slavery and women is too tough to address. We'll get to that later. So we pushed it into the future. When the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783 that ended, officially ended the Revolutionary War, we didn't have a constitution. We didn't have a set of rules. Um, one is easily led to believe that we were a great united country at the end of the Revolutionary War. Only less than 2% of the population actually participated in that war. We were, at the end of that war, a, a, a divided country. There were still those who were loyal to the king. There were, there were still those who were loyal to the culture and society of the South which set the stage for slavery. So we were a divided country. When the Constitution was signed, the preamble says, in order to form a more perfect union, we are not 
and have not been in that respect a perfect union. So there's so much work to be done. There's so much reconciliation to be addressed. And then came the Civil War. Uh, I, I have been a student of the Civil War my entire life. And early in my adulthood, I took up the argument that, that the Civil War was about state rights. And, and I equipped myself to argue from an intellectual perspective that the Civil War was not about slavery. I have changed my mind 180 degrees in the last 15 years. The more I read, the more I experience, the more um, I, I talk to people who have a different pers perspective than I do. I, I'm beginning to believe that that was, I, as I have for some time, that racism set the stage for slavery and, it's, and that the Civil War was about not just states' rights, but about embracing that concept. And if you peel that back, it's a very, very ugly, ugly thing. You know, I, in my notes, I say talk about World War I and World War II and Vietnam and the Cold War. I can't go into that, obviously. I don't have time. Um, but the burden on my generation, for example, was to bring about healing and reconciliation as a consequence of the Vietnam War. And, you know, I was in the Marine Corps, and it was very difficult for the Marine Corps to, to outlive that error. Um, and I, only history will be the judge of how successful my generation was in bringing about, about reconciliation. I don't know if how many of you were alive or have read about the disunity and the division in this country as a consequence of the Vietnam War? But it was really, really bad. Um, on some fronts, it is as bad as what we're experiencing today. But fast forward to what I call the uncivil war that we are engaged in today. This incredible political polarization that we have that just gets uh, wider and wider and you know there there is there is no longer a place for a moderate in the debate uh, and I'm and I'm not suggesting that the moderate is the person who should stand for compromise in these issues because if there's one thing reconciliation is not it's not about compromise it is not about compromise So let me just share with you um, a couple of events in my life. Um, I, I was raised in the Deep South. And in my formative years as a young teenager, um, I, I began to witness the emergence of the civil rights movement. Uh, I, I was raised in Atlanta, which... Uh, in the 40s and 50s and even into the 60s was not a big city, certainly not as big as it is today. And um, I was raised by Southern conservatives, most of which were Democrats, but they were in reality Dixiecrats, if you will. 
but I, I was raised to believe that there was a significant difference between colored folks, as we referred to black Americans at the time, and white people. Everywhere I went in the city of Atlanta, there was continuous reminder of that. Every department store you went into, there was a water fountain for colored people and a water fountain for white people. There were, where there were bathrooms for black people, um, they were separate from the bathrooms for white people. Now, in my naivety, I began to believe in the absence of real teaching that there was something physiologically different between black people and white people, that they drank different water, and that when they went to the bathroom, they did something different than what I did. I really believe that. So, in the spring of um, 1958, I was 12 years old. Now, I, I know that it's hard for some of you to imagine me being 12 years old, and most of you, I've always been an old white man. <laughs> Irredeemably evil. <laughs> you said that. But every Saturday morning, my mother would take me to the bus stop. I would get on the bus, I'd, I'd ride the bus to downtown Atlanta, I'd go to my music lessons, then I'd meet my aunt and my cousin at the bus stop, and I'd ride the bus with them to College Park on the south side of Atlanta. And another reminder of this racism that existed in the day was if you rode a public conveyance like a bus or a trolley in the south, there were signs all over the interior of the bus that said, colored people stand behind the yellow line. And so the, the bus, two-thirds of the way back in the bus, was a line across the floor. And so all colored people were expected to stand behind the yellow line. Any of you familiar with that? Well, it was the reality of, of the world I grew up in. So on this particular Saturday, and, and I have to tell you that this was a watershed event in my life that began to break down all of the social norms that I had been carefully taught up until that time. My aunt and my cousin lived with my grandparents on the south side of Atlanta, and it was about a 30-minute trolley ride to get there. And when we got on the bus, there was just one seat, this long bench seat right behind the driver. My aunt, my cousin, and I took that seat. We were about halfway to College Park. The bus was packed, standing room only. You could not move in the aisle. The bus stopped, the doors opened, and a black woman got on the bus carrying two bags of groceries. In one hand, she had her token. She dropped it into the slot. And the bus driver said, move to the back of the bus. And so she turned and looked toward the back of the bus. And there was absolutely no way for her to maneuver with these two bags of groceries through this crowd. No one was moving. The bus driver said again, move to the back of the bus. And she, I, I can't, I can't. 
No one's making room. Move to the back of the bus, he said for the third or fourth time, raising his voice. I looked around, and, and everybody was reacting as if this woman did not exist. She was being ignored, and she was standing right in front of me, and I was sitting down. Now, I have to tell you that when I was 12 years old, I was shy. I was um, fragile. I was significantly underweight. I had absolutely no self-confidence. My identity in Christ had not yet come alive in me. All I wanted to do was just sit in the back of the room and watch everybody else do their thing, and I was comfortable with that. Suddenly, I saw myself as if in an out-of-body experience stand up, and I heard myself say to this woman, please take my seat. And when I said that, it was, it was as if everyone was trying to suck the air out of the bus. And she looked at me, and, and I saw in her eye more concern for me than for her. But nonetheless, she sat down. And, and I am petrified. Several stops later, my aunt and my cousin and I get off, and my aunt ripped my lips off. When we got to my grandparents' house, she shared with them what I had done. They were horrified. It was as if I had just told them that I was pregnant. They were horrified, and I was horrified by their reaction. My whole value system began to shift dramatically as a consequence of that. When my mother found out about it, she scolded me. When my father found out about it, um, we talked about it. There's a difference between my mother and my father. So, fast forward to 1963. I had just finished my freshman year at Clemson. 1963 was a tumultuous year in this country. John F. Kennedy had just been assassinated. The success of the civil rights movement as expressed in the Civil Rights Act was in question. Kennedy was dead. No one knew that the Civil Rights Act would ever pass, ever be introduced. Coincidentally, I matriculated at Clemson that year with the first black student ever to, to come to Clemson. Her name was Lucinda Brawley. She was my lab partner in chemistry for one year. And we became fast friends. Um, I didn't tell my parents that. I didn't tell my aunt that or my grandparents that. So the school year is over, and, and I go to a job that I'd held the previous summer. Uh, I worked for a company that was, was in, uh, sheet, in the sheet metal business. We built uh, sheet metal cabinets for, for storage. My boss was a guy named Dewey. Um, up until that point, he was the largest person I had ever met. 
He was huge. He had hands the size of baseball gloves. And his skin was as black as coal. And his eyes were brilliant white, as were his teeth. And he was my boss. He taught me everything I needed to know about the sheet metal business. Uh, and he called me Mr. Bishop. And after I got to know him better, I said, Dewey, please stop calling me Mr. Bishop. He said, I'm sorry. It's the way I was raised. So the second summer, the summer of 63, I, I started to work there. And uh, he told me, he said, I think you're ready to go on the road. We're going to go to Anniston, Alabama. Now, this is, this is the summer of 1963 in Anniston, Alabama. I get in two trucks with eight black men, and we're headed to Anniston, Alabama for this job. We drive up on a Sunday night to check into a motel. We go into the lobby of the motel to check in, and the manager says, you can stay here, but, and I, I, won't, I won't use the term he used, but those guys cannot. About 10 miles out of town, there's a place for them to stay. And so Dewey looked at me and said, Mr. Bishop, why don't you stay here tonight on our way back in? We'll pick you up in the morning. I said, I'm not staying here. I'm afraid of this place. Take me with you. <laughs> so, so the eight of us walk into the lobby of this exclusively black motel, 15 miles out of town. The manager looks at me and says, what is he doing here? <laughs> and Dewey looms over him and says, he's with me. So that sort, of, that sort of closed that book in my life. I mean, I, you know, I, I began subconsciously to reject the teachings of my youth. So... I share those with you because I know that there are many of you who, um, who probably never experienced anything like that in your lives. And if you, if you haven't, um, then you have perhaps been protected from the depth of this hatred, this racism that has been so insipid in our country since the founding of this little colony in Jamestown. That's how old it is. So, several days after this, I got the second word from the Lord. Slavery has left a deep wound in the soul of Richmond, and I am calling my people at Harvest to heal that wound. So this is when all of this began to take on the characteristic of a burden in my life. You know, I, I felt like Moses. Why me? Why are, why are you speaking this to me? How come you're not talking to Doug about this or Manny or Rifle or our Tim? Let me give you their number. So I, I'm sitting in my living room one night with my wife before the fire, and we, we were reading, and 
all of a sudden, my gaze landed upon a book that's been in my bookshelf for 10 years that I've never had any interest in reading. And the title of the book is The Debt. And it's written by a well-known author by the name of Randall Robinson. So I read this book, and it was all about slavery from a black man's perspective. And, and I tell you, it, it, it changed my whole paradigm with regard to this issue. I, ha I have heard this often in an exchange between a white person and a black person over the subject of slavery. You are not a slave, and I have never owned a slave, so get over it. To me, that is an expression of this, the depth of our lack of understanding of the significance of this issue. The author of this book, The Debt, starts by saying, if nothing else, black Americans have been robbed of their history. If you're a young black man in this country today and you want to find out about your heritage and you go to one of these companies that can help you online, your search will dead in in the tax records of the people who paid taxes on the slaves that they owned. That's where typically where your search will end. And I'm sure there's some of you that can bear me out in this. So there is a lopsided historic paradigm in this city. There is the grandeur and the splendor of Monument Avenue, if you choose to call it that. But what is absent from the historic scene in this country is the evidence that the city of Richmond played in slavery. Uh, how many of you have ever been to Manchester Dock? down by the river. During the period of slavery in this country, over 350,000 slaves entered this country through Manchester Dock. I'm sorry, Manchester Dock. It was the single source of entry of slaves into this nation for almost 50 years. In, in, I'm sorry, in 1857, the slave trade in Richmond alone was three and a half million dollars. By today's dollars, that's almost 400 million dollars. In the year 1861, the city of Richmond took into its treasury well in excess of $10,000 that was collected for the payment of licenses and sales tax for the sale of human beings. Where of East Broad and 15th Street right now is, there used to be what was called an African cemetery. Those were slaves who did not make it to the selling block, who died either in route, died in, pro in the process. Um, there's nothing that marks that location right now. How many of you have ever heard of Lumpkin's Jail? That was the holding place for thousands and thousands 
of Africans when they came to this country awaiting to be sold. It's also referred to as hell's half acre. So when you think about slavery and you think about the history of Richmond and you think about this word that I got for the, from the Lord about I have called my people to heal this wound first in the city, you have to believe that that's a very, very serious word. And I, and I ask our folks in the audiovisual to put this word on the screen so that you see it with the same clarity that I received it. Um, I have tested this with Doug. I've tested it with others. I, I tested it with Brian. And uh, this is real. So the third word I got from the Lord was, um, my people at Harvest are called to lead Richmond through reconciliation. So there are three scripture verses that I would like for you to read. These are all from the King James Version. I'm not going to read them to you. I would invite you to write these verses down, pray over them, meditate over them. Ask yourself the question, what is my part in this? Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, Colossians 1, 19 through 21, and 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 22. Please read those verses. So I, I asked the Lord the question, what is it that Harvest is supposed to do that the government has been unable to do? And the Lord brought to my mind the Declaration of Independence, the preamble to the Constitution, the 13th, the 14th, and the 17th Amendments to the Constitution, I would strongly encourage every one of you to get a copy of the Constitution of the United States and read the 13th, 14th, and the 17th Amendments therein. They address this issue head on. What has changed? Very little. The, the strides that we have taken to become a more perfect union are dismal with respect to this issue of the racial divide in our country. The, civil, the first Civil Rights Act was passed in 1866, and so inadequate was it to its task that President Kennedy and Martin Luther King together began to draft what would become the the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which President Johnson was able to push through Congress after Kennedy's death. The most significant document, not in the value that has served our society, but the extent to which it has been ignored, is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 is not up there. You can take that slide down, please. The Voting Rights Act was, as all of these are, are federal statutes and laws, which forced the states to eliminate all barriers to all people for voting. Since the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, 
the federal government has continuously been in the courts suing states for their failure to uphold the fundamental tenets, if not the spirit, of the Voting Rights Act. The Commonwealth of Virginia <laughs> has a dismal history of aligning itself to the Voting Rights Act. Almost every state in the South has been sued by the federal government for their failure to comply with even the most elementary tenets of this federal statute. I can assure you that in the election that we're facing in just a few weeks, there will be calls and pleas on both sides of the aisle that the states and the counties and the jurisdictions and the precincts have not complied with, with the Voting Rights Act. And there will be lawsuits, I'm certain, as a result of that. I would encourage you, again, to read the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act. Read them and, and come to your own conclusions about what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to behave as a nation. And then ask yourself, in fact, are we doing that? The answer to the question that I asked the Lord, what can Harvest do that the government has, has not done, is a lot. I'm almost through. So two weeks ago, you may recall when Doug was preaching, and, and I don't even remember the context in which he said this. Would you put that next slide up, please? Slide number four. So here's what Doug said. We are all called to be ministers of reconciliation. I'd never heard that before. I'm familiar with the verse in scripture that, that says God wants all of his children to prophesy. But I had never heard before anyone say we are all called to be ministers of reconciliation. So I met with Doug a few days ago, and I said, Doug, this is what the Lord has placed on my heart. We should have at Harvest a ministry of reconciliation that takes this issue on, head on. And Doug was in agreement. Stand up and say, I agree. <laughs> so... Here's what I'm going to do. Uh, after the first of the year, I'm going to host a meeting at my house to discuss in much greater detail all the things that we have talked about, that I have talked about this morning, about reconciling those, this immense racial divide that exists in our country. If we think for one moment that we can heal the political divide in this country before we heal the racial divide, we are starting at the wrong end of the problem. We will never come together as a nation until we solve the fundamental difference that exists between us as a consequence of the differences in the color of our skin.
we will not be able to get there. I'm just as certain of that as, it, as I stand here. That deep wound needs to be healed. And I believe with all my heart that in this city, this body of Christ has been called to be a part of that process, about being a part of that reconciliation. And, and I hope that when I send this invitation out toward the end of the year, um, that many of you will be there. So the plan is to, to start early on a Saturday morning and talk about just some of the very fundamental issues like, like uh, um, stereotypes about white privilege and what that means. You know, I prayed to the Lord. I said, Lord, what is it that I don't know that I need to know? And he said to me, we're in agreement over one thing. You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> but the Lord also said to me, there are things that you should know that you will never know because you are a white man, an old white man. You will never know. You will never know what it means to be a young black man trying to raise a family in this country and be fearful of driving down the street that a taillight might be out, and that then is the excuse for you to be stopped and harassed. And I'm not saying that all police do that. But there's a reason why a lot of cities in this country have done away with racial profiling. White privilege for me is not having to be afraid of being profiled because of the color of my skin. White privilege is not having to walk into a room where there is predominantly white people and not be self-conscious about the color of my skin. White privilege is not being able is being able to stand up like I am right now and talk to you about these things and being concerned about how you may respond to them. So, um, sometime in January, I'm sorry, sometime in uh, November, December, we're gonna, I'm going to pass the clipboard around and ask you to put your name down and show up in my home so that we can begin the business of being obedient to what I think is a, is a very serious call on this body. And I hope you will join me in that. So let's pray. Father, I, I, I feel compelled to pray the prayer of Jabez <laughs> that I have done no harm. I pray, God, that um, all of us here today will begin to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our souls, strengthened by your spirit in us to see the truth as it is revealed in, within us, as it is revealed in our church, in this city, in our nation, and in the world, God. I would just pray that, that you would raise up an army for this battle in this church and that we will become known in this city as being fearless as being courageous 
to stand up for what is right and stand up against what is wrong. So I would just pray, Lord, that um, you would hear our cry, that you would hear our hearts, that we would all be joined together in unity as one, as your son prayed in the garden, that we would all be one in you as we are one in one another, that there would be unity in this body and over this issue, that we examine our hearts, that we, that we own what is ours. And I just pray, Lord, that you would guide and direct us through this. That every thought and deed and action, Lord, would be guided by the leadership of your spirit in us. And I just give thanks to my pastor and my friends who have encouraged this day, who stood with me in agreement, and that we would all be strengthened to go forward and do great things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, if you need... Thank you. I think you can appreciate that my greatest challenge was to put almost 18 months of download into 45 minutes. Um, I have so much more to share, so much more to say on this issue. I have learned so much. That God, the Lord has revealed so much to me, has taken this old white guy and found wet clay. And I am not irredeemably evil. So if you need prayer today, our prayer ministry will be up here. Our praise team will be here. So if you need prayer today, if there's something on your heart that you that you would like to confess or ask guidance on, we have these wonderful prayer ministers who will hear your heart, who will respond in kind. And so I, I, I would just hope that uh, this message does no harm, that it does good, that you hear my heart, and um, you were dismissed, and thank you for your patience. God bless you all. Before we leave, I just, I just want to say this real quick. I know that uh, we've, we've gone over today, but I want to thank this 